Hello, welcome to Discovering Jazz. My name's Larry Sademan here in Victoria, B.C. For the next hour, you and I are going to discover some great jazz, including some on the fringes of the genre, sponsored by Peterborough Independent Podcasters. Today, getting down to the basics. Well, at least to the base. A couple or so podcasts all about jazz bass. During the earliest days of jazz, the tuba, and sometimes the bass saxophone, was used to supply the bottom end, with a few exceptions, which I'll talk about after this first selection. It was just too hard to hear the string bass, and the electric guitar hadn't yet been invented. So let's hear some tuba providing that bottom end. Shelly Roll Morton's first recording in July 1923 with the New Orleans Rhythm Kings, an all-white band that, uh, by employing Morton on the session, it became the first racially mixed recording session, and with tuba player Chink Martin. The tuba even gets a bit of a solo in here. This is Mr. Jelly Lord.
Morton with Chink Martin on tuba. So I mentioned those exceptions in early jazz where the tuba or bass sax wasn't used. In some jazz bands, such as Clarence Williams' Blue Five in the early 1920s, they didn't really have a bass instrument holding down the bottom end, but simply had the trombone fill that spot. The tuba died out in the early 30s when microphones were then able to pick up the string bass a lot more clearly. But what a lot of people don't realize is that the string bass as a jazz instrument really has a history almost as old as that of the tuba. A man named Bill Johnson was the master of the slap bass, a style he developed so the bass could be heard better, and is said he started playing it as early as 1900. He formed the original Creole Orchestra, which later morphed into the legendary King Oliver's Creole Jazz Band. His style went quite a bit beyond the one and three emphasis popular at the time, and even beyond the walking bass using a few intricate rhythms. Listen to this track from 1929, Get the L on Down the Road, Bill Johnson's Louisiana Jug Band. Get for you. I tell you what you should do. Get your hat in your hand, get the L 
Dale Johnson on his three-string bass playing that slap bass style he invented in 1900. That's Frankie Halfpint Jackson, who is also a female impersonator on vocals. From 1929, Bill Johnson's last recording session, even though he lived to be 100, finally leaving us in 1972. So, Let's talk more about the evolution of the bass, although it appears as if Bill Johnson was somewhat ahead of any evolutionary process. First, Walter Page, who was with the Count Basie Band in the late 1930s and early 40s. He had a strong tone and played all four beats evenly in his walking bass lines. This was typical of many of the great bass players of that era, and Walter Page was a great one. I'll play their 1938 rendition of Leroy Carr's How Long, How Long Blues with Basie on piano, Freddie Green guitar, Joe Jones on drums, and Walter Page on bass. Then I'll talk about how one certain bassist ended up totally upsetting the whole apple cart that carried the traditional role of the bass player. Thank you. 
Count Basie with Walter Page on bass, along with the rest of the rhythm section just keeping the time. The emphasis here being on emphasizing the root note. And for many years, and even today, that has been the primary function of the bass. Although all the members of the band are responsible for the timing, here's another example this time a Canadian bass player who is so adept at keeping the foundation of the tune. From 1963, the late Fraser McPherson with this quartet with Oliver Gannon guitar, Jay Canna drums, and the bass of one of Canada's most recorded bassists, Steve Wallace. Wallace does nothing fancy here, but his role is so essential in keeping that slow swing feel. A good bass player can allow the other instruments to do whatever they want without disrupting our sense of security. Duke Ellington's Sophisticated Lady. Thank you. 
Major McPherson Quartet with Steve Wallace on bass. Today, I'm talking about the role of the bass in jazz. That role changed thanks to two bassists who both died at a very young age. Jimmy Blanton from the Duke Ellington Band and Bill Evans bassist Scott LaFaro. Let's start with the man who first introduced such a radical departure from the bass being primarily a timekeeper. His name is Jimmy Blanton, and he played with Duke Ellington only from 1939 to 1941. Blanton died in 1943 at the age of 23, but very much shaped modern bass styles. He played melody on some tunes and soloed on a tune or two. On those 1970s arrangements, we often hear where the bass ends up being plucked, playing the horn lines in unison. We can marvel at the fact that this was done 30 years prior to that by Jimmy Blanton. Here's one where he plays melody and plays with the horns. Duke Ellington's Jack the Bear.
Wow, Jack the Bear, Duke Ellington with the bass of the great Jimmy Blanton. A few years later, another bassist took the role of bass even further. I'm referring to Scott LaFaro. LaFaro broke from the traditional timekeeping role, choosing instead to play around the piano lines while letting the drums outline a steady groove. Evans called the approach conversational. Give a listen to their version of My Foolish Heart from 1961's Live at the Village Vanguard, and you'll hear what I mean. It starts with uh, LaFaro playing a simple bass, the root note mostly, on the one and three. Then listen to where he goes. Thank you. 
Bill Evans, My Foolish Heart, with Scott LaFaro on bass and Paul Motion on drums. Next, I want to play two versions of a tune. They are different combos playing them, but most dramatic are the two different bass styles. First, from 1957, the Dave Brubeck Quartet from the Dave Diggs Disney album, with Paul Desmond on alto sax, Dave Brubeck piano, Norman Bates on bass, Joe Morello drums, Someday My Prince Will Come, from Walt Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Thank you. 
great rendition despite the fact that Norman Bates bass is so basic not much uh, other than playing on the one beat and the occasional three note run and of course he's not just playing the root note and it really accentuates the melody and solos is played by Dave Brubeck and Paul Desmond and Joe Morello's interesting but subtle brushwork now here's the same tune with the Bill Evans Trio and a radically different concept of bass playing by Scott LaFaro. This is from 1959, 
while the 3-4 waltz beat was so prominent in the Dave Brubeck version. Here at times it feels like 4-4, primarily due to the bass lines that contrast with drummer Paul Motion's fairly straight 3-4. As much as I like that Brubeck rendition, this one is so much more exciting.
Evans Trio. Wasn't Scott LaFaro's bass work amazing? He died at such a young age. He was 25, the result of a car crash. He extended the bass innovations that were first started by another bassist who died at a young age, Jimmy Blanton. Okay, let's hear a few bass players all playing on the same tune. Percy Heath, Paul Chambers, Ray Brown, and Charles Mingus. Except they're not. It's John Hendricks and Dave Lambert imitating them. Here is Lambert, Hendricks, and Ross with Oscar Pettiford's Swingin' Till the Girls Come Home, a 1962 recording. And of course, you probably know Oscar Pettiford, the writer, was also a very famous bass player. Lambert, Hendricks, and Ross. Boom, 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 boom,
Percy Heath. Paul Chambers. Ray Brown. Mingus. bass player here in that Lambert Hendrix and Ross recording? It's Ron Carter. The pianist is Gildo Mahonis and drummer is Stu Martin. Now one of the people that John Hendrix imitated was the great Ray Brown, who we in Canada know because of his many years with Oscar Peterson. Here is a Johnny Hodges composition, Squatty Roo, a very early collaboration between those two amazing musicians from 1951, where you can hear that fat tone for which Ray Brown was so famous.
Oscar Peterson and Ray Brown from 1951. Now I have time for one more tune. Then next week I'll play some more jazz bass, taking us into the more modern era, including some amazing jazz bass guitarists. And it looks like this series on jazz bass is going to extend into a part three. Now, on that Lambert, Hendricks, and Ross recording, another bass player they tried to imitate was Percy Heath. Percy Heath was best known as an integral member of the modern jazz quartet. And interestingly, the bass player we just heard, Ray Brown, was actually first slated to be the bass player with that group. But he had other commitments, so Percy Heath was recruited. Percy Heath has been on about 300 recordings over a career that spanned over 57 years, and he's worked with Miles Davis, Dizzy Gillespie, Charlie Parker, Wes Montgomery, Thelonious Monk, Sarah Vaughan, etc. He was described in his 2005 obituary as being precise in his technique, buoyant and springy, capable of spontaneous countermelodies and always sounding like he was pushing the beat. His sound has also been described as cool. Percy Heath never made a solo album until the year 2003 at the age of 80. And uh, he made his only solo album entitled A Love Song. And I'm going to finish today's episode with something from that album, which garnered rave reviews and featured his brother, Albert Heath, on drums, bassist Peter Washington and pianist uh, Jeb Patton. He recorded this first in 1956, this particular tune, with the Modern Jazz Quartet. And 47 years later, he reinterpreted on his solo album. It's John Lewis's Django. Percy Heath. You're listening to Discovering Jazz. My name's Larry Sademan. Next week, more jazz bass, including some electric bass. Bye for now. <laughs> 